How's it going, my fellow Americans? Welcome back to the show. It's time for another brand new episode of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I am your host, Andrew, for America. And today, I had the opportunity to sit down with engineer, technician, entrepreneur, and author, Mr. Joe Golisarian. Joe is the author of the book series known as The Practical MBA on Economics, Everything They Do and Do Not Teach You in Business School. And at the end of this interview today, he goes into what you can learn from reading his book. Very interesting, well-researched information. I highly recommend. Uh, There's some good history in there. Uh, Highly recommend you guys all go check him out. Uh, He has a YouTube channel where he recently put up uh, a little mini documentary. And we kind of talk about some of these topics in the interview today. And it's called Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Propaganda. And some of his insights and ideas about what uh, the step-by-step process may look like as artificial intelligence gains IQ points over time. Um, it, it sounds a lot like the Terminator to the Matrix movie timeline. Uh, I've, I've talked about that before, and I don't know if that's absolutely true, but... I believe that the person that wrote The Terminator also wrote The Matrix movies, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And I think there's an interview of her talking about how Terminator was, you know, step one when AI became self-aware, and then The Matrix is the inevitable uh, takeover of AI to where human beings become batteries for the machines. So uh, I know that's deep and kind of dark, but I think that is kind of the gist of the situation. Um... Joe has some very cool insights and ideas about those topics, so definitely I recommend go checking out uh, Joe's YouTube channel to check out his books and his short videos, mini documentaries, etc. If you want to learn about Joe and purchase his books, you can go to practicalmba.ca to read the write-up on Joe and read about his... um, professional history and the books he's authored and uh, you can subscribe to his newsletter there and get all the information on what Mr. Gullisarian is doing. Uh, Very amazing conversation we had. Uh, I was riveted by a lot of his wealth of information. We talked about how uh, we've built a Ponzi scheme that we cannot easily get out of and we have to get people off of government too much government. He's uh, kind of a libertarian thinker like I am. He believes that government causes more problems than it solves, uh, I believe. I don't want to speak for him, but that's the uh, mood I got from him, and uh, I feel like we agreed on a lot of things in that department. Uh, We talk about the economic history of the United States, how price controls work, uh, and how the war, World War II, solved the Great Depression. Uh, how President Harding and Hoover caused a lot of problems for this country. Um, We talk about money printing and the Bretton Woods financial reset. Manufacturing and innovation uh, go hand in hand, and we need more of it. Uh, All economies need 
manufacturing, which logically leads to innovation. Uh, we talk about government intervention in the marketplace. Uh, more often than not, it is bad outcomes and not good outcomes. Uh, Joe talks about what he calls the cabalitocracy. Uh, you know them lovingly as the globalist bankster big club here on the show. Uh, we talk about parallels between the American and Roman empires. We talk about the BRICS nations and the Eastern uh, cultural economic philosophy. And then we talk about AI and the future of propaganda. And then Joe talks about his book, The Practical MBA. And then we get out of here. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. Uh, Joe is a great uh, he has a great sense of humor. He's cracking jokes throughout the entire chat. And uh, really enjoyed talking to him. And I hope he comes back to the show and uh, revisits us here in the future. So I'm going to hit a break. And when I come back, I'm going to play for you episode 161 of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast with Mr. Joe Gullisarian. I'll be right back. Right. How's it going, my fellow Americans? Welcome back to the show today. I have the pleasure of welcoming to the show entrepreneur and author of the book, The Practical MBA, What They Do and Don't Teach You at Business School, Mr. Joe Gullisarian. How are you doing today, sir? Welcome to the show. Correct me if thank I'm you. wrong. If I, did I pronounce your name correctly? First, of all. Excellent. And thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. So uh, before we get started, I wanted to kind of read the write-up on your book that I saw on your website. I think it's a great way to introduce you and to promote the book. So uh, here we go. The Practical MBA on Economics, What They Do and Don't Teach You at Business School. A plethora of wealth, knowledge, and insights that will help you take over the world and beyond. Government and the central banks have been managing the economic business cycle for over 100 years creating the biggest Ponzi scheme of money printing ever invented in the history of civilization. As we now find ourselves living in a precarious house of cards, by uh, hollowing out our manufacturing, have we diminished our inventiveness? What role did China really play in this? And what role did our own selfish desire uh, affect the outcome? And what was the trade-off? Is this the beginning of the end of the United States monetary global dominance? And how long can we print fiat money to support the vestiges of the declining empire? Is the cost of living going up or is it because currency is rapidly depreciating? What is the true source of effective inflation and why is the wealth divide becoming greater? The pages of this book bring to light the roots of our economic order of today and help explain the world around us, how we arrived here, and what might lie ahead. The Practical MBA on Economics is comprehensive, fast-paced, making for magnificent theater full of spills and chills from stock market crashes to sovereign debt default to the 1944 Bretton Woods reset, the IMF, the WTO, U.S. dollar reserve and mercantilism, we come to meet the economic thinkers that shape our world today, from Adam Smith, Richard Cantillon, John Maynard Keynes, 
David Ricardo, Murray Rothbard, and Milton Friedman, one of my favorites. My audience knows that. With intellectual clarity, insights, wit, and humor, Golisarian challenges the narrative, simplifies complex economic ideas, and draws from historical events to explain how we came to the current financial world order, its perils, and the future of tomorrow with compelling anecdotes that entertain, filled with relevance and a library of knowledge that leaves the reader feeding, I'm sorry, feeling full and liberated to unlock the future. So butter your popcorn, do fasten your seatbelts, and enjoy the ride. And sir, I got to say, my audience knows, I always say, go grab a beverage, strap on your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy, bumpy ride when I introduce some of my show segments. So I love that you added that on the end of your tagline. Sir, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Very good. Very good, Andrew. How are you today, this fine day? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for coming on. So uh, if you would, yeah, give my audience a little bit of background about uh, you, uh, you know, your professional history and uh, how you got into desiring to and researching uh, all the information needed to uh, write your books. The floor is well, yours. Well, I, I started on the factory floor. Uh, um, it, it's a long story, but I'll, I will make it in a very quick summary. But I, I've grown up around some technologies. My original plan was to study engineering, which I did. I used to program some of the industrial robots going back in the 1980s and specifically for machine tooling applications. I got out of that. Um, from there, I ended up in the health and beauty care industry, and that's where I built health and beauty care brands. I eventually then did my MBA. Um, I didn't like school, but you know, I, I didn't mind my MBA. Um, I did that despite of myself, um, and they felt sorry for me, I guess, and they graduated me, and then, um, uh, I got, I'm not tired. I really enjoy running companies and stuff like that. I and mean, I've traveled most of the world, Vietnam. I've had customers in Vietnam, South Korea, uh, um, in the uh, Gulf region, in Latin America. And um, I started writing books. This is my second one. The first one was a warm up about in 2016, but this was a practical MBA on economics. And right now I am just editing and looking over one more time uh, my new book, which is going to come out hopefully December, January, we're looking at, and it's called The Gorilla Guide for Entrepreneurs. So I'm gonna, So what I do is I combine my street experience with academia, and I forgot to tell you, I taught in college for two and a half years. Um, and it wasn't basket weaving, or um, I didn't teach gender studies, no. Um, I taught statistics, corporate finance, all that nasty stuff, you know, and postgraduate marketing. And that was my claim to fame. And so here I am. I hope that wasn't such a long speech. And uh, uh, we'll take it from there. Yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. So so uh, talk, tell me about the book. So uh, what kind of research did you do for it? And um, what are some oh. of the main themes, themes that you're trying to get across uh, for your readers in that book? Well, the research was, was just gar gargantuan amount of research. Um, and, and it went along everything. I, I probably read nine and a half thousand pages from philosophies to all the great economists. And, and I started looking and looking and looking and looking. And what we've done is through our entitlements, we've built ourselves a Ponzi scheme. And there's no easy way out, you know? Um, so I did a fair bit of research on that. I'll give you an example. P people don't, and I'll just dig right into it. Uh, and we can go into the, um, um, 
mid-century reset of Bretton Woods, but I don't want to get too, too technical. I'll give you an example to really bring it home. We have approximately, you were on the doorstep of $34 trillion of accumulated debt. If you read the Wall Street Journal today, it says, well, this year we're only a 7% deficit, but you know, folks need to wake up. That's only 7% of your $25 trillion of your GDP. I'm going to throw some stuff here. So you got $34 trillion, okay? That's $280,000 per American household of government debt. That's so it's worth, it's worth a lot more than a lot of net worths of households, but it doesn't stop there. You have what they call legacy costs, you know, uh, uh, police, fire, pensions, all the other wonderful people in Washington that have all their pensions. And we, we won't go into government just yet. You know, I've got to um, bring my sharp knives up for that one. But um, <laughs> so when you add that, the most conservative estimate is $75 trillion. Some people say 200. So in my book, I kept a nice round number at $100 trillion, 75, and I took 34 and I shaved it. So I didn't go 109, I went just 100. Um, that's $1 million of debt per American household. Now, once you've got the plebeians of Rome, they're, they're too busy, just like the Roman Empire, you know, they keep them busy. They built the Colosseum, had the gladiator fights. You can watch MMA. You can watch, you know, during, during the COVID, you could have watched, you know, King Kong versus Godzilla, you know, special referee Bambi. I don't, I don't, I don't watch it. Today. I don't know. And uh, anyways, I only watch any Netflix series as long as uh, they're bad guys in there. After all, why go to the movies, right? So you got a hundred trillion, uh, you know, you got a hundred trillion, a million dollars per household of debt. And people talk about government programs. And I said it before on another show, you're going to probably ask me, is there an antidote for this? Yeah, because you got to get people off government addiction. And so you have to have government addiction centers, like instead of spending money on these, you know, wars and so on and so forth. Um, and um, uh, we can have, you know, government addiction centers, maybe, you know, put out about 25, 30 million beds and, you know, get them therapy, you know. So, you, you know, you bring yourself down because I'm not you, I'm not I'm talking when we do as human beings, when we start depending on a collective power as opposed to our individual, um, you know, being self-sufficient, if you will, uh, it weakens the psyche, right? So, uh, you know, you you, you 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 put people on government assistance or on depend a lot on government, and then you know every four years, you know, you have them fight, you know, over Rome, and you give them scraps like democracy, and they can go vote and so on and so forth. It keeps them busy for a while, you know. <laughs> At least you have a chance to vote for your next tyrant. But don't worry, it's gone on for five thousand years. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what would you say would be you know where this originated like obviously um in my experience w w from every all the research that i've kind of looked at uh it seems to have gone back to 1913 when we sold uh the government uh, became the corporation of united states of america we sold it to the europeans federal reserve comes in the irs comes in a lot of people make the argument that that was the beginning of federal reserve no reserve notes uh federal reserve notes fiat currency and they said that the debt was already paid for. How can you pay a debt with a debt? Um, it, and, you know, what, what would you say to that? Is that where all of this started, where this beginning of the, the boom and bust cycles of our economic system began when we let the Federal Reserve come in and, and be our central bank? What would you say uh, was the cause of this? Wow. 
That's a pretty big question to unload. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but anyways, um, I did speak about that extensively. You are very close to the truth, but I'm going to bump up to close to the end of the First World War. And I'm going to talk about a depression a lot of people don't know about. It's the 1920 Depression. It was President Harding was was uh, president. Now, when I did my book, except, you know, I knew Nixon was a Republican. I knew that Obama was a Democrat. I didn't know if Harding or Hoover were Democrats or Republicans. So, uh, you know, I'm Canadian. I, I didn't really, I just spit it out, right? So mm -hmm. it's not a political book, you know, so my mind was clear. After I wrote it, I go, oh, I didn't know that. President Harding, um, we had a, a depression in, in 1919, 1920, there was a depression. What happened is the troops came back from the war. There's obviously distortions in the economy. You brought back millions of soldiers from the First World War, which incidentally, we had no business being in at all. And it shouldn't have started, but that's another story. We'll go into the financial origins sometime, if you like, of the Second World War, which stems from the First World War. So what happened is you had unemployment at 13, 14, 12 percent. Um, and I think at the, uh, the convention, he says that I am. You see, back then, there was not political capital to interfere in the economy. There was no John Maynard Keynes yet. There was no FDR yet. Hoover was was actually, I believe, part of um, of uh, Harding's government. Yeah, I think he had. He was not secretary. He was, well, I think he was close to being a U.S. treasurer. Um, the point is this, and Hoover was an interventionist. Harding turned around and said, I will not use taxpayers' money to bail out unsound positions and distortions in the economy. So without going into a long speech, he left it alone. A depression after a year and a half, unemployment dropped into the single digits, five, six, four, three percent. The economy recovered. He left no debt behind. Weak companies, did, you know, went went to the wayside. Uh, you're not, you know, and if you believe in saving the old economy, well, why don't we bring back the horse and buggy? Henry Ford came along. A, a gargantuan amount of American innovation came along. You know, it was the time of Edison, Firestone, Ford. We can go on and on about American innovation. It's it's it's. Um, um, it, you know, uh, American know-how was incredible. We had a manufacturing sector to help. So that was the last, Andrew, that was the last natural recovery from a recession. And a recession is not a blasphemous word. It cleans out the distortions out of the economy. It, it new, new um, sprouts of hope come up and a new generation comes up, new ideas come up. And, you know, the camera comes and then, you know, the, you know, the, the uh, solid state circuitry comes, the television comes, you know, you can't suppress that. So, um, yeah, that's what happened. I went into a fair bit of the little bit of the history of innovation and technology because I've got a little thing for stuff like that, you know. Um, so even to this day, I really respect engineering. I took mostly um, when I studied, I took mostly industrial and all that kind of stuff there and all that, you know, it's kind of nerdy stuff, you know. And anyways, I got no, a lot of trouble so, in high school. Yeah. <laughs> so you said so you said that was the last natural um, correction of the stock market before what happened though. Like what was the turn that made you know the inflation start progressively getting worse and worse and worse, the devaluing of oh. the dollar getting more and more and more. 
Like, you know, yeah. what what was it? Um, it was it a bunch of bad go- government uh, policy over time or, you know, what, what would you think caused this this constant devaluation over time of the dollar then? OK, we didn't have so much a stock market issue during Harding at 19, 20, 21. You had an economic issue, massive unemployment, um, trade wars between Europe and the United States. Um, Americans would not let Europe dump their wheat. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm not going to go there. So I, I'll, the only point I want to make in that chapter of, of, of history, economic history, is it was the nat- last natural recovery of the economy. Hands off, leave it alone. Um, uh, you know, basically, um, you, you know, government doesn't have a very good history of price formation, you know, and if, if they did, the Soviet economy would have flourished during the Soviet time. Mm-hmm. So now you're going to ask me the question of what brought America from the, it, well, it still is a bastion of innovation, in my opinion. Um, oh, for sure. But, but what brought it to the level of becoming, and I hate to use this, but yeah, well, a, a quasi-welfare state, if you will, right, mm-hmm. from, yep. from all this innovation. Now, business is not perfect. You know, there's, there's also crony capitalism, and, you know, I'm not going to go into Wall Street just yet. You know, we can throw spears at them later. But what happened is um, the Great Depression came. And you're, you went back to the feds. The feds felt that they were flight fighting deflation. It was inflation. They thought it was deflation. They, they basically, or the other way around, they basically turned around and increased interest rates, thinking that they're, they're going to fight inflation when it was actually deflation. So they took the opposite oh, remedy. Okay. Yep. So that was the feds. The other thing is, Hoover was a strong unionist and, you know, he worked for in the Harding administration. Hoover took over. Um, he had programs, one failure, like it started coming out that every one of his programs was starting to cost the American taxpayer a thousand dollars a head. Um, uh, between Hoover and FDR, they started getting into the Industrial Recovery Act that happened under FDR. Um, and they were starting to say, okay, you know what? We're going to control the supply of cattle. We're going to have less cattle, okay? And if we have less cattle, farmers can get more money for their cattle. But, you know, Joe and Andrew can't afford the meat now. So we, it contracted more and contracted more. There was an area where FDR, uh, through the Industrial Recovery Act, some of the agricultural programs he had on, he turned down and said, you know, businesses need to make money so people can get jobs. Very logical. Here's a guy, you know, you got to remember, these are politicians, okay? Most of them couldn't run a lemonade stand, right? Um, um, that's why they're there. And, and uh, uh, you, you know, it, it's, not just, it's not just in America. I mean, uh, uh, politics has a history, going back to the Greeks and Romans and so on and so forth, of, of, of really uh, attracting the most proficient criminals. And, um, it, it, you know, and, I, and I'm being hard there, but it just, you know, tell me something else. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there's, of course, there's some politicians who really mean well, and, and we can go there and later. But so anyways, there was a book called The Planned Society um, that FDR read. And you got to remember, FDR was uh, uh, had an admiration for Mussolini and all the central control and, 
you know, um, uh, so on and so forth. And the plan society is where at one point he turned around and said, we're going to increase prices. So no more cutthroat, comp cutthroat competition. And if you were participating fair price, it was like a fair pricing act. They had these blue, blue tags they put outside your store that we don't do cutthroat competition. Problem was everyone was broke. They couldn't afford the higher prices. They couldn't afford the old prices. Right. So the whole myth of FDR and he saved the Great Depression. No, he, he saved a lot of banks that should have gone under. Those banks should have been, the creditors should have been the depositors, not the central bank, the depositors. That's who they should have been. And finally, you know, I, I'm going to borrow from Thomas Sewell here. The Great Depression was finally solved in 1941 when the boys at Pearl Harbor, the boys went overseas to fight. That took six, seven million people out of the labor market, men. And you're, you're, you got to remember your unemployment was running between 20, in 1930 till 1941, ranging 22, 17, 14, 13, 12. It was at 14%. The war broke out. Soldiers went overseas. That solved the Great Depression. Interesting. Now, on a proportionate basis, I think the GDP to debt was 120% after that. For the most part, including gold confiscation, which is, it's confiscation, right? For the most part, um, FDR's programs were a colossal disaster that took a, a, a mild, a strong recession and turned it into a depression. Him and Hoover. I, 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 100%, they're the culprit. They should have kept out. The distortions would have resolved itself within two years. So, well, that's a long speech. No, no, but that's, you no, know, you're onto something there. So, so my, my thought off of that was, um, do you think that maybe that's the reason why FDR tried to find a way to get into World War II then? Because they saw a way out of the economic issues that he may or may not have caused. <laughs> maybe some of his, his, um, uh, cabinet members or advisors were telling him like, Hey, we got to find a way into this thing. Uh, you know, it sounds a little conspiratorial, but when you look at it from the money perspective, it's not off the table of possibilities. What do you think about that? Well, you know, uh, Winston Churchill eventually, you know, he had a, a very, uh, conducive relationship with FDR and, you know, the British badly needed the Americans to come to their aid in the second world war. Um, I'm not going to go deep into that. It's not my specialty. That's a, a, a political uh, question. But I do know that when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, the Americans had blocked, I believe, a lot of their routes to get energy and oil. So it was not for out of the blue for no reason at right, all. Right, right. There was right. a rationale behind That's it. That's as far as I can take it. Not, not to skid your question, but oh, yeah, I, no. I don't, I don't, it's not an area that I, you know, if you came up to me and said, Joe, what are the financial origins of the Second World War? Bang, I can tell you that. That's in my book, too. And uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, feel free. I mean, that's kind of what I was looking for was just like that, that, that um, over time, I, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that over time, there has been a lot of reliance on the Federal Reserve is always going to be there. We can just keep printing money. We can keep kicking the can down the road a little bit longer because we can always tax more. You know, so long as we have the power to tax, we can always 
uh, right the ship was was the argument from, you know, the Fed and, and other people in the financial world and government for a very long time. So um, the fact that today the inflation is so out of control, um, maybe we don't need to get too hung up on how we got here, but let's uh, let's flip the coin and say, uh, how do we get out of this? So is it unsustainable and is it already too late? A lot of people feel that way. Um, what what is in your estimation the best way or the the steps that we need to take to right the ship and get back to some type of uh you know fiscal conservatism or some type of balanced budget what what do you think uh needs to happen okay i i'm going to go back to money printing i'm going to go uh back to the 1940s for a moment okay Sure. And um, and into the 1950s, um, there was Bretton Woods. Bretton Woods was the gold standard. Mm-hmm. The gold standard meaning, quite simply, that if you printed one dollar, you needed 40 percent gold, 40 cents of gold. So if you built printed a thousand dollars, you needed 40 cents of gold, uh, 400 dollars of gold. So there's a 40 percent range there. So what that did is a couple of things, and it really, I hope it plays into what you're saying. It, it answers your question. When I put, may it be, uh, 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 if, if um, Bitcoin is the answer or gold is the answer, once you have a gold standard, that gold standard stayed until, I believe, 1944, till Nixon took it off in 71. Under the gold standard, I have more money I have less money to bribe you for your vote. I have less money for your scam wars, pardon me, and you know, uh, frivolous wars, and we'll just call them like that. They're all financially driven, right? Um, um, Even, you know, even the Roman mercenaries after a while said, you know what, unless you get paid in gold, we're not going to fight for ideology. Just give us the gold, we'll fight, right? (laughs) So, uh, yeah, after all. um, But in, in seriousness, so you had a gold standard that went from 1944 till 1971. And then the the US at one point, what happened is the US at the end of the Second World War had 80% of the world's gold and 51% of the world's GDP and 28% of the world's manufacturing. When you have manufacturing, you have innovation. When you have manufacturing, and I'm not talking like today, we're not talking smokestack manufacturing so much. We might be, you know, Joe or Andrew might be repairing and making more efficient industrial robots or plants and floors or what have you. Um, but what manufacturing also does on a societal level is you got to keep these young men minds occupied mm. and playing with tinkers and fixing stuff. And then, cause I, I grew up around a, a plant. That's what, you know, my dad had a machine building company. So I started, you know, learning some, interesting stuff you know i'm not saying i was great at it obviously that would have done that but i have a great appreciation of it right sure and you know so i've built parts i've done stuff and i've done some interesting stuff um you know i'm no you know i was no babe ruth of the uh, you know industrial engineering field by far but you know i have an appreciation and a respect towards it so when you have um manufacturing you have tinkering and innovation and i'll give you an example I, let's say I studied engineering, you studied engineering, we're both 25 years old today. That was a couple of hundred years ago for me. But um, um, but I, I designed something, it could be something simple, I calculated, I'm just being facetious or my smartphone. 
In the old days, the engineer would go back in the plant with the foremen and the plant workers or so on and so forth and go, what do you think of my gadget? How's it running on the line? Um, they don't have that. They just outsource it overseas. So we've lost our learning curve. People will go, we're going to bring American jobs back. Okay. Mm. Um, you, you've got to, you know what? You've lost almost two generations of artisans, technicians, tinkers, dreamers, thinkers, uh, people who had, you know, technical engineering backgrounds, trade engineering, you know, technical backgrounds. So, you, you know, these were, and don't always think that, you know, formal education is, you know, oh, you know, I'm brilliant. On the contrary, um, the, you know, the more I stay in this world, I start realizing how many brilliant people are out there that are not formally schooled. Just absolutely brilliant, you know. Um, so, yeah, uh, you take, take us off the gold standard. It's Nixon, 1971. He got it, and he's a Republican. He's supposed to be a free market guy, relatively, right? It's 1971. He got involved in wage and price controls. I'm going to control wages. I'm going to control prices. No. Uh, so I gave you the, the history of American dependency on government begins with Hoover and starts progressing and progressing and progressing and progressing and progressing. And if I take your candies away and it's election time and I decide if I turned around and say, we're going to reduce taxes by 60% in this country, I'm going to reduce government 90%. You're going to call me a fascist. You're going to, I don't know what else you're going to call me. Uh, uh, you're going to call me all kinds of names and then I'm going to have to run into a safe room and hide, you know, but um, <laughs> yeah, you know, what can I tell you? Um, just, you know, give the plebeians some meat, print some money. Um, and, um, you know, if they, they turn around and look at government and go, you guys are bad. No, 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 no. It's the greedy corporations. You mean the ones that give us our, our donors and our donors and so forth. But, you know, yeah, that's where it is. You, you got them hooked. This happened in Rome. This happened yeah. in the Soviet Union. They're, they're all hooked. And, and, you know, you got kids growing up. Oh, government's so good. I mean, it's, it's so great. Um, you know, if we have an AI program and it's going to take a lot of jobs away, maybe it could pretty well clean out 85% of the uh, bureaucrats in the economy. I had this conversation with somebody, a friend of mine, and she goes, yeah, I, I believe we should reduce government 30%. I go, how about 90%, you know? <laughs> You'd be fine. There's only 5% taxes, brother, in 1920, 21. You're fine. Sure. You're yeah. fine. If, if, you're, if, you're, if, if our great-grandfathers or if, if they had a, and they did have this, oh, by the way, I forgot the Spanish flu in 1918. Hit, the Spanish flu hit, the soldiers came back and recovered in two years. Not this crap. Now, if if your grandfather got hit by COVID, Spanish flu is much worse. They'd get up in the morning, go, I got to go to work. I got a family. Yeah. <laughs> At yeah. that time, for sure. Yeah. yeah. My, you know, my wife will go, uh, I got a, you know, I got a family, right? You know? And, uh, yeah. It, well, I gave you a speech there. Sorry. No, that's fine. No, that's perfect. So um, there's clearly a lot of reasons. It sounds to me, based on what you're what you're saying, that you're not uh, in love with central planning and uh, uh, price controls and all of these interventions into the market, uh, the Keynesian economics that came later, like we alluded to earlier. Um, what do you? What would you say is some of the most important economic 
things to know for this young woke generation that thinks government's going to be the answer to all their <clears throat> questions. I mean, it, I feel like you always got to bring it down to fundamentals. What are some basic tenets that that these kids need to know about how markets work? I mean, that's kind of a big question, but you know, well, there, there's yeah. some there, there's some economic <clears throat> fundamentals that I'm sure are in your book. Uh, you know, what are a couple nuggets for these young kids to maybe get in their head? Sure. I, I, I didn't completely hiss on Keynes. I'm, I'm the furthest thing from a Keynesianist. I didn't completely hiss on him. Keynes, if he was alive today, uh, he studied at Eton. He was a mathematician by his undergraduate and his training. He was in mathematics and some, I think, classical philosophies. Then he got into economics. He says, okay, we're going to create our artificial demand when the economy gets was um, was contracts and in recession and then we will print money against it you know stimulate the economy when it's over we pay it back on paper right. it was good so i mean i, I don't think he was a, a, a bad fellow he was there in 1944 uh, representing the british at, at, at Bretton woods however once politicians and and fdr started before Keynes came out with his economic monetary theory book in 1933-34 i believe once politicians got a wolf of whiff of Keynes, the phillips curve uh, they were taught that you know we can save the economy it it, it doesn't have the re, it doesn't have the vitality to repair to revive itself from a recession only enlightened People with cosmic visions, in, in other words, politicians, can right. fix this economy. Again, um, you know, most of them probably couldn't even coordinate an eight-hour shift as being a, 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 a greeter at Walmart, okay? But no, they can fix the, the big, large macroeconomies, and they bring their PhDs with economics. And I'm being <laughs> mean here, you know. But anyways, um, but uh, uh, so they, 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 when you... Tell young people, study what's happened with that. Look, free markets and capitalism is not perfect. But show, and, and I'm not taking, uh, you know, the Soviets had very good mathematicians and physicists, but in the Soviet era, there was not one product that came to market. Mm -hmm. It wasn't because the Americans just necessarily suffocated them, because um, you were not given uh, uh, incentives to do well. Right? Nothing right. against them that way. Or to tinker, like you said, or to be innovative. Yeah. 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 The, the thing is, is, if I lived in the Soviet Union, if I had friends and you were in the political class, and, you know, then I become a permanent upper class, right? And then the lower class. And uh, so it, you tell young people where, give me an example of large government and freedom living in the same house. Give me an example. I'll take you back to Mesopotamia. I'll take you back to the British Empire. I'll take you from this side to the other side of Africa, to Mao, to the Bolsheviks, to Lenin, to, to uh, Castro. It's not just in this century. To Maduro, they got a bus driver running Venezuela, right? That's what they I have a guy <laughs> used to work for him. He's a bus driver, right? And I don't know if he's a good bus. Maybe he is a good bus driver. I don't know. But, you know, you say, can you give me an example? Well... You know, it just and here's what they're going to do because they're getting their brains formatted by their by their you know flunky professors who are sitting there uh, who don't have a lot of you know a lot of them are really cool right uh, but you know they're sitting there getting formatted all these theories but like Thomas Sewell said these 
in academia for their gargantuan amount of failures, which you see in the central bank, they're not accountable. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That, so that's, that's what, what I'd say to the youth. That's what I would say to a, a 21, 22-year-old. Okay, that's okay. Be ambitious. You're 21, 22. You're going to change the world. You're going to fix the world. You're, you're going to wipe out pollution. You're going to you're going to beat the crap in the back alley out of carbon, and you know it's going to be great, and everyone's going to be doing some the latest break dancing out in the streets or what have you. <laughs> but um, give me an example, because you have these people who like centralized control, who want power without accomplishment. Yeah. And I think, well, I think when you said uh, not being accountable is one of the biggest problems with the inflation and the overcorrecting and, and you know, there's definitely agendas at play uh, that aren't necessarily, you know, in the best interest of the American people. So, like you said, you know, the cronyism that goes on and uh, mm-hmm. capitalism is clearly not perfect. There's going to be people that have nefarious purposes, perhaps. I mean, uh, I think it's just... it. For me, my advice to young people would be do your research on the people that you are voting for and make sure you know what their platform is before you go pull the lever for them so you you don't end up in a situation like you mentioned with FDR when he's doing monetary policy that's working in the opposite direction of the way we should be going. <laughs> yeah, so. it's fiscal. Yeah, it's fiscal. And, and it's very hard to get off the cart because once that got you addicted, right, um, what it's do you drugs. want to just oh, for me? Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's worse than drugs. At least drugs, we have some hope of getting people off drugs. But but once I got you addicted to large government, I turned the tables. And, you know, um, the, the you know, I said to you before we came on the program, I said the correlation between government, Silicon Valley, the rocket scientists of um, Hollywood, oh, yeah. media, academia, the military industrial infrastructure it's all one part of a cabal autocracy mm-hmm. and and you know to people that sit there and say oh yes we're gonna you know if only my party gets in may it be whatever your party and it's going to be changed they're not going to change uh, uh this is gone this is really really uh, a scary time we live in you know i mean my uh, i got a cousin of mine who now moved to uh uh, Mexico, you know, he works in the financing industry and he's a very brilliant guy. And he sent me a message on LinkedIn. He goes, yep, very, very, very strange times we're living in, you know? And, um, uh, uh, so, you know, you're, you're asking me a question, what do we do? Well, yeah, I come up, I reduce government by, you know, 85%. Um, (laughs) I go, I go, um, you, you know, um, basically, you know, you can't, you don't want to clean up the corruption in Washington, Ottawa, or London, because otherwise there'd be nobody left, maybe a couple of caretakers, you know, and they'd be the only ones not on the take, right? But, uh, right. Uh, like, and I'm being extreme in that sense, but I go, um, I never, you know, when I grew up, I grew up in, you know, staunch, you know, rule of law. I felt that if, if someone was a billionaire and we went to court, I'd get treated the same. And, you know, I believed in all those things, you know. And I think I had some good teachers, too, that you could tell they genuinely cared for you, right? But mm-hmm. but I, I think I think our institutions are amok now. They're amok. And I do not, you, you know, when you say we the people and all these things, and, you know, you, you talk about the Constitution. And, you know, the American Constitution is a 
is a masterpiece of literary work. Uh, of, in my view, in many respects, an unequivocal masterpiece of liter liter literary work. Um, it's all great, but you know, the donors call the shots. I'm not going to go into the politics, whatever side you're on. Right. And and you know, there's very there's very little times in history where people have regards for the population. I think sometimes if you read Marcus Aurelius, the last great emperor of Rome. Uh, and, and meditations. I'm going to read it. I've only read parts of it. And uh, some people have a genuine want to um, um, fix things and help things. Yeah. And then, uh, if you like, I can tell you later about the cabal autocracy fighters. And there's, you know, I think there's four or five people that are not following the script, and they're the outsiders, you know. But you know, they're reading off the script. Did you see the movie? Um, uh, uh, the Sound of Freedom? Uh, not yet. I've heard lots of things about it, though. I have not yeah. seen it yet, though. Yeah, yeah. So uh, everybody's quiet on that. Who would uh, Who would you say are those four people that aren't following the script? Oh, there. I got you. <laughs> you got so, me. In, you, you, you sparked my curiosity on that one for sure. Yeah. So let's start. Uh, uh, we can start, first of all, in, you know, I, I believe Elon Musk is probably the greatest industrialist since Henry Ford. Um, mm -hmm. um, uh, and he's, I, I think he has a vision of understanding that I don't know how long we're going to last like this with each other on this planet, the way it's going right now. Sure. sure. Um, um, and that's why perhaps in, in, a, in, a, in a very subliminal way he's exploring other planets. But what I'm saying is, Elon Musk bought Twitter, which is now X. Mm -hmm. um, inside it was was basically intelligence agencies all over the place infesting it. Okay, he cleaned out seventy five percent of the workforce, maybe higher. You can correct me there. You might be more up on it than me. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as he did this, and basically we can have open market debates, right? Um, uh, about ideas that we might not agree with, and that's okay. But, but you know, I will defend your ideas. That's that's the spirit of freedom and democracy and all those sure. things. But I'll defend your ideas. I'll defend you for your right to express your ideas, right? Um, so he didn't go along with the script. So you will notice articles. I don't read USA Today, but I do read a little bit of Wall Street Journal and Barron's Magazine. Uh, did you know uh, Twitter's not making money? You'll go on Yahoo Finance. Twitter's not making. Well, did they ever make money? Hey. So that's the first attack. Uh, you know, um, Elon Musk, um, um, uh, Tesla has stiff competition coming in um, in automobiles. Well, their fixed costs are so low as as a percentage of their variable costs in their automobiles. They've reduced their car price on their cars, and now they're selling even more cars. Elon Musk is revered in China. He's the only one. He, I think he owns almost 90, 80, over 50 percent of Tesla in China and under Chinese rules, you can own 50, you got to be a minority shareholder. So um, they're taking shots at a SpaceX, the military's after him for that. They're taking shots that um, he's, you know, he, the rocket ships he's made has made a fool out of NASA and anything the government's created recently. Um, and, and they're taking shots at Tesla, um, not too much of him personally, his personal life. He's very eccentric, very intelligent guy. Mm -hmm. um, um, so, not playing by the um, rules. He's not, 
following the script. Right. And when he's not following the script, uh, he's getting attacked in the media left and right. If he followed the script and, you know, uh, you know, we want to increase taxes for global warming. We want to increase taxes for, uh, you know, we'll bring in whatever we want to do. Right. Everybody's a victim. Everybody's, you know, the deal. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, he's not following the script. So he's one in the business sense. He's not following the narrative. He's not part of right. It doesn't seem to be part of the cabal, okay. right? You know, if you want to get kicked off uh, uh, X, you, you got to do something stupid now. And that's your own fault, you know, if you're going to do something stupid. Right. But I mean, right. I have a, you have an opinion, I have an opinion. We can debate it in a civil way, right? Sure. Um, so I don't know how much you agree with that, but uh, teach their own. Yeah. But I, he's not reading the script. So okay, so Elon Musk, and then you said there's like probably three or four other ones. I've lost your uh, communication. Hang on, I lost your. Yeah, sorry, I lost. Can you, you hear me? Yeah, no, I can hear you again. Okay, I didn't hear you for the last fifteen seconds. Oh, that's okay. Uh, so, so he's one of them. But go on, you did say something. My apologies. Oh yeah, I was gonna say you said there were three or four people that aren't following the script, and it sounds mm. like you do agree that there is this cabal that's. Uh, worked its way yeah. into the global octopus of power, uh, like uh, Charlie yeah. Robinson from Macroaggressions likes to uh, uh, describe it as. So, uh, who else isn't playing by the rules? Uh, well, and is outside of this got, cabal. Yeah, he's yeah, and, and I just called the cabal talk. It, it, it's it's the other okay. Elon Musk is a Bronco bucko, um, and and of course we can't forget uh, Mr. Trump. He's not following the script. Sure. If he followed the script, um, you, you know, he, he would have, you know, he would have been a fantastic up, upscale member of the cabalitocracy. He's not following the script. The other one who's not following the script, and he's a Democrat, and he's not following the script, is none other than RFK. Mm -hmm. And I have a cousin of mine who is a hardline Democrat. And I go, hey, look, they delivered RFK for you. And, you know, he's a pretty bounce. No, I, he just completely hates, hates them. Just like he hissed at him like a cat when they get mad at you. So RFK is not following the script. Why? Because he's introducing balance and reason. Mm -hmm. Right? He's, you know, he's saying, yeah, we have to have compassion. He's an old school liberal, you know. So he's another one um, not following the script. There's Trump. There's Elon Musk. There's RFK, and you see the media hissing on RFK. He's a vax denier. He's a this denier. He's a this denier. Well, how many of you, those people have read his book? I read his book on the real Anthony Fauci. It's about, on my Kindle, it was like, geez, 500 and 600 pages, right? Mm -hmm. um, he's not a seductive writer, but my goodness, the empirical evidence that he put forth uh, and his documentation is like, man, I got floored, you know? Yeah. Uh, he's quite an intelligent man. Interesting. So there's him. Tulsi Gabbard is not playing. Is not. She's not reading the script. Right. I mean, don't people understand? You watch CNN. You watch ABC. Uh, you you you. MSN comes on on your screen. Uh, Yahoo Finance comes in. You know, they're all following the script like chimpanzees. Right. They're just following the script and. You know, and I'm, you know, I'm getting paid two million dollars to be a teleprompter reader on NBC or ABC, and oh, yeah. but they're not authorities. There was a time, probably before you, people never knew if Peter Jennings 
or Walter Cronkite, what political party they were affiliated with. They just, you know, it seemed that they had a, a, a sense of duty and honor. And uh, so these are the four. You might think of, you know, more than me, because, you know, we live in the States there. In Canada, we might have one or two. But these people in political power uh, uh, have their own agendas. It's got nothing to do with sure. You know, that's, yeah. that's just my view. I, I can't give you all the answers anyway. Oh, yeah, no, of course. That makes sense. So those are four, the four that you see aren't playing by the script. That's uh, interesting. And uh, what do you think then, uh, just because you brought up Canada and uh, I was thinking about uh, asking you what your opinion of what's going on with the government in Canada and uh, Mr. Uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, you know, what his policies are, how... how are they affecting Canada? Do you have any opinions on that? <laughs> are, are we, oh, Justin Trudeau. Oh, jeez. Um, you mean our right honorable crime minister? <laughs> no. <laughs> that what you're about? I didn't say that. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, but uh, uh, there you go. Uh, a guy with a very thin resume. I, I'm not going to hiss on him. I'm sure you've seen Jordan Peterson hiss on him. All the time. Um, oh, yeah. 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 You don't need me to hiss on him. I mean, there's been, I'm, you know, they're, they're professional hissers. I'm not going to go there. Um, uh, but, you know, he's he, like a lot of the West. You're giving money out to a very, very shady group right now while your people are living in tents, you yeah. know? Oh, yeah. And this is not just in America. I see it. I see it in in Canada as well. You know, because we're in many ways a mirror of America. Uh, in many ways, we are we're cousins, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're first cousins. Sure. And my wife and I were driving on a Saturday morning. We were going to go to a function somewhere, and at the side of the road, there's this beggar, and I. I <laughs> I got a weak heart, you know, and, and I, I left him some money and all that. He was messed out, opioid out. I don't understand all the, you know, the latest drugs, but you could tell the guy was bones, skinny. I saw them in stores. I saw them in the, I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying that they're messed out. So um, right. these people need to be helped. And um, the politicians don't don't care about that. Um, and, and in fact, you know, uh, the, the crime minister and um, um, and I won't go into that other guy with dresses up like G.I. Joe uh, overseas. You know, he wears his green, comes to the White House, comes to U.S. Uh, Congress, comes to Ottawa. We'll call him. Yeah. Mr. Ukraine. Yeah, Mr. Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and um, 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 so he was with the prime minister and people were just genuinely just screaming at him. You know, you could see it outside. They must have had 50, 60 cops outside the, you know, entourage, you know, the big SUVs, the big Lincolns and Cadillacs. And then he'll give a speech on the environment after you blew up so much uh, uh, gas idling, right? I go, it must have cost them like just for like three hours of security and stuff like that for six, seven hundred thousand dollars just 10 feet away was people in tents, man. So you know, I'm not going to go into there. I'm not going to litigate the Ukraine war. That's not what, um, right. but, uh, you know, that's a lost cause at this point, but you can believe what, <laughs> not if you listen to the mainstream media, but. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we've kind of, I, I guess, I mean, any, it's anybody's guess how we got here. It's anybody's guess uh, what the solutions are to get us out of it. But let's just say 
Which let's one? just take let's just take the reality for what it is. It seems to me that both of us kind of have a, a similar idea of what's happening. And uh, my question to you would be: What do you think is going to be the play out of all this stuff if it continues unchecked? Are we are we globalizing and getting rid of national boundaries for this one world government? Are we going to devalue the American currency and go to digital? Is AI going to you know play a part in that? Um, you know what? What do you foresee the outcome of of the West uh, in in given this climate, the BRICS nations rising and all that kind of stuff? Well, um, that's a lot to unpack. Yeah, I mean it's it's yeah, a lot to it's a lot to take in, but yeah. um um you know based on just <laughs> what it seems to me like you are seeing what I'm seeing in a lot of different respects. So, uh, mm-hmm. what do you think? I mean, is it all doom and gloom? Is there any positive outcomes that we can talk about? <laughs> You know, when you look on a global way, on, on a global scale, you know, you, you know, you have to look at the perspectives of, you know, the other cultures in the East compared to in the West, right? Mm-hmm. I travel, I learn a lot of different stuff when I travel, you know, so. Um, in, in terms of BRICS, people don't know this. The, the U.S. Uh, GDP to debt is about 127, 130%. The Italians are at near 200% GDP to debt. The, I'm not going to go into China, but when you combine their debt along with their household debt, which is not high, but their intergovernment and bank debt together, because if you have a, a bad company and they owe you $200 million in China, they don't write it off that easily, right? They keep it on their books. So China's got its own economic problems. But what happened was this, when the war broke out, I'm just talking about BRICS for a moment, and then you can come back at me and isolate me on the other questions, which I'll be happy to comment and make a note of. Um, When Putin, I think they confiscated close to 300 billion US dollars off them, right? The US dollars is the reserve currency of the world. So, you know, uh, when he travels and he goes to China and he goes, what happened? He goes, well, you know, I got stiff for 300 billion because, you know, I got a fallout with NATO, Ukraine and the West, right? Because you know, you know the narrative: Russia bad, West good. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. Russia bad, Putin bad. Everything I see in the paper, Putin sitting there. Oh, geez, he's he's got his diarrhea bag out, man. You know, yeah. You know, Putin. Oh no, his blow up doll walks out on. You know, all kinds of stuff you see in the MSN. You know, yeah. You like that? I thought you liked that one. Anyway. Yeah. Just in case, I brought my crochets with me. But, you know, but, the new, the news will spin it however they're going to yeah, spin yeah, it. Yeah, they'll spin it. So yeah. yeah. So here's what I'm going to get, and I'll do a one-minute summary on that. Um, uh, BRICS is basically not going to deplace, displace the U.S. dollar anytime soon, because to put a currency together, you have to put down, you're only as strong as your partners. Ethiopia is now involved, India's involved, China's involved, Argentina, I, I wouldn't lend the money for lemonade stand. So what I'm trying to say is they want a trading system that they can they can trade separately off the SWIFT system. They've pretty well created. They've got a, they've got a, 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 a BRICS bank out too, as well as in China. Mm-hmm. You, you need to understand the Chinese want to do business. They don't want any wars. They want to do business. They've got pretty good relationships with Taiwan. But um, so in terms of BRICS, and it's, it's a long story. I'm not going to keep it long. I think it can now create a new club of Rome to rival the U.S. 
perhaps to stop a little bit of the money printing in exchange for votes. Um, but they want a system because if you're holding two trillion dollars of cash and and, and uh, U.S. ten-year note treasuries or treasuries and you're Saudi or and if you're and or you're China and you go, you know what? What if they shut me off the SWIFT system? What if what if they what if we get into economic warfare? You know, with with the U.S. dollar. So in saying, I defend the BRICS from one end, saying, okay, they are creating a new not a new currency, but a new trading block, if you will. I defend the U.S. dollar because I don't think anyone's going to unseat them just yet. It's going to, you know, we, I, not for the foreseeable future, just but you never know. But the uh, idea is once you give me rupees for my oil and I'm Putin, what do I do with it? Well, I got to sell it back into, well, RMBs in China. So eventually it'll circulate back to U.S. dollars. But China now has, and I listened to this guy, Alistair uh, McLeod, he's quite brilliant guy on gold. China now, I can take rubles and buy gold with it. I can exchange it for RMB and buy gold. Mm -hmm. So if you can buy gold, it's really cool. I will say one thing about Russia that a lot of people don't know. Um, their currency got stronger than ever about a year ago. Then it's now it's weak, 90 to 1 on the US dollar, 92. Um, they had interest rates back to 5, 6 is back up to 12% because they want to defend the currency. But when you talk about the valuation of Russia, they have over $75 trillion of natural resources. That's more than the US stock market. When you also consider, and this is going to shock you, they have 19% debt to GDP, the lowest in the developed world. Wow. Because they they can't print money because you're going to hiss on the ruble if Putin and you know his treasury starts printing. So they have low debt, the fifth highest gold reserves in the world. The Chinese are number two, the Americans are number one in gold reserves. You know, um, so they they have their fiscal house in order that way. Of course, the war is hurting them. Yeah, at some level, but they're adjusting. They have no choice. Anyways, so uh, BRICS is interesting. Uh, it's not the beginning and the end. Uh, it's not the end of the U.S. dollar, but it gives them some competition. I don't see any currency coming out of it. Uh, maybe on another show I'll talk about how they could create a currency because I thought about it the other night, you know, in my bat cave there, you know. And yeah, yeah. That, well, and you know, I would I would think that when you said China wants to do business, they're not trying to do war with anybody. Huh? Um, it, it does make logical rational sense to want to do business and to trade with other nations rather than let somebody's currency completely uh you know go down the toilet or whatever um especially when so many countries are mutually invested in one another in some way shape or form so uh would you say that uh the american people can take a little bit of solace in that 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 the dollar uh is not going to be allowed to completely fail or, or is that inaccurate of a statement to make? Well, the only people that could make the dollar fail, in my opinion, is two entities, the central bank and the U.S. Treasury. Hmm. Right. So in other words, all all rot from great empires. And America is an empire. Sure. Uh, comes from within. So I don't think and that brings you back to the circular flow of money printing right mm -hmm. print me money give you know I, i'm happy i got my 
six pack of Miller beer, 12 pack. My, you know, I need 12 packs. Six is not enough. I used to, you know, we need 24 pack. I got my Netflix, right? Uh, every every four years, I screamed for four years. So because of this politician or that politician, and you feed me scraps, I have the right to vote because my pre-selected tyrant or uh, and and whoever, if it's pre-selected, they play the tune. The media will go along with two, three candidates. Oh, yeah, they're all it's all sure. part of the tune, right? Sure. But it, uh, bronc and buckles need not apply, right? Um, otherwise, play you the know, game. Play the game. You gotta play and the game. Life, yeah. is, life is short. I'm surprised. You know, you you get to the point in life and go, geez, do I want to make my my life miserable and be a real rebel and so forth <laughs> and do a, a rendition of James Dean and so on and so forth. But um, so we're you know you're looking for an answer and you have every right to and I respected him incredibly so Andrew. But I think um, there's no easy answer. If the U.S. financial system collapses. The government will come up, people will go, oh my, it's collapsing. And then the great Messiah will show up with the, perhaps with the digital dollar. Right. But then the question becomes, some people will say, I want something that has no counterparty risk, gold, Bitcoin. For sure. Remember they were, yeah. they're hissing on Bitcoin. Uh, Janet Yellen hissed on Bitcoin. The other ones hissed on Bitcoin. It has its place because Bitcoin, you can't print more. Sure. And yeah. if you if you put the U.S. Stored dollar, value. yeah, exactly. If you put the U.S. dollar on gold or to sound a little bit more contemporary or a combination of Bitcoin, something like that, where it's got finite uh, 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 supply. Sure. Uh, there's no money to print. Uh, you can't print more. So sorry, you got a little bit less for propaganda. But look. Artificial intelligence is coming, <laughs> and you can have really cool propaganda. And with, you're going to ask about artificial intelligence, but I can create with a program. I think it's called Cynthia. I can create in about 30 minutes a beautiful newsroom with really polished anchors that are avatars, and I can pretty well tell you, guess what? Um, the Russians have moved 100,000 soldiers into Poland or Romania, and then you know everybody's going to get their made-to-measure uniform. Darn it, I'm going to beat them up, you know. What are you fighting for? Yeah, just give me the hint. Oh, it's for freedom. There you go. Right. <laughs> it's a scam. It didn't happen. You know, uh, and I did it. I don't know if I told you. I did a, I'll send it to you later, um, the link on my channel there. Um, I created a 21-minute mini documentary called Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Propaganda. Yeah, that's exactly what uh, that's exactly what I was getting ready to ask you about. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? I'm very interested in that. Okay, about the about the video, and it's really based on an essay um, uh, that I wrote. Um, and the video starts with um, you know the history of propaganda. And um, I don't know if I just lost you there for a second, but no, I don't think I did. No, nope, I'm sorry. <clears throat> but it talks about the history of propaganda. A lot of people don't know this, but uh, Edward Bernand, pardon, I didn't pronounce that right, was really the father of propaganda, as you know it. He worked for Woodrow Wilson, mm -hmm. he, and there was uh, Creel, a couple of others that created with Woodrow Wilson. You got to remember, 1916, at that time, 
Woodrow Wilson ran saying we're isolationists, we're not getting involved in foreign wars, which is really American, it's, you know, it's, it's American philosophy, right? Sure. Um, at the time. And they wanted to get people involved in these wars. He created the, the uh, Committee on Public Affairs. And that's where he brought in Edward Bernassi. And Edward Bernassi later, uh, what they did is they had the four Minutemen. In other words, they had pitchers. In other words, pillars of societies, maybe attorneys, judges, teachers, what have you. You know, people you looked up to and early media types. Remember, still the talk, they didn't even have talkies as much. A lot of mm -hmm. films are still silent. So they went from town to town to town. And then they created the Sedation Act. And it basically, if you didn't go along with participation in the war, you were a traitor. And you, and if you, you'd snitch on your neighbor and you would um, be brought in and be dealt with uh, under the law. Uh, so um, that Edward Bernassi turned around later and he was the guy on um, New York City, Madison Avenue, who turned around back, back in 19, 20s or so, just that, well, not even the 20s, and it was shameful for women to be caught smoking in public. So what he did is he created a, he, he had a bunch of women start smoking during a parade and associated that with, I think, Lucky Strike, the cigarettes. That's that's our expression of freedom. Right. Yeah, right? I think Noam Chomsky talked about that, how he got, he's mm -hmm. like, you know, this is uh, how you be a modern woman smoke cigarettes that that was his whole angle and that was the beginning of right. moving market forces with propaganda yeah yeah it was Edward Bernay so he, he rallied the intellectuals the artists the journalists just like you see today um, Silicon Valley the media academia sure. who am I media? Uh, did I get Hollywood did I get in there too because sure. uh, so you 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 gather them and you know you know take your vax uh you know eat your wheaties you know um uh so on and so forth you know i'm being facetious here right right, right. You, you know do this do that vote for the candidate I, because you know obviously you know rihanna uh, she, and, and all these other entertainers they, they have to tell me who to vote for because you and i we're not smart enough to know something like that they they have to tell us you know whatever we're just we're just gumbies you know so anyways uh, working on that, and I won't, uh, uh, and I'll just move through it quickly here. Uh, there was other sections in the, like in the first Gulf War, uh, the first Bush, they used an agency, they had this, and it's in my uh, um, documentary, if you will, they used an agency, and they had this lady, teenage girl, come in and say that there's Babies being taken out of incubators by Saddam Hussein's soldiers in Kuwait. Well, they uh, looked up this girl uh, in consultations with, an, and she spoke before Congress, right before mm -hmm. Senate committee. Yep. Uh, her father was ambassador to Kuwait. The whole thing was a setup. It was a scam, right? So that's where it went there. But now it's going to get really, really good because what are you going to do? I'm going to give you a little bit about the propaganda, but what are you going to do when you turn around, for example, and you have automated generation where AI can create huge volumes of text, images, videos, satellites, pictures. Oh, yeah. And I gave you one example of a fake military excursion. I can do one where a fake military excursion where 
Um, I started creating rumblings all over the internet and getting people in fear and saying, China, we have reason to believe based on, and they'll make, if they have to, they'll make fake satellite images with AI and sure. I don't see mock around it. It's absolutely incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, you know, the issue is it's going to be smarter than we are, which doesn't take much these days. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, so guess what? China is getting ready to invade Taiwan, you know, so, you know, everybody, you know, go down there and get measured for your next war and so on and so forth. So, you know, we'll probably go in those areas there. Um, I didn't lose you there, did I? No, no, okay. I'm still here. Yep. Okay. So um, they can use AI for stuff like that. Um, and so there's social media manipulation, AI algorithms they can use. They can use targeted messaging if you want. That's really, really spot, spot on. You know how much already Google knows about you. They're I'm a little sure. bit behind in AI compared to some of the other players, but you know, they're, they're pretty good at that stuff. So there's like in my essay that I wrote in my, uh, uh, the video that I created, and this one would be known a couple of weeks. I actually put it up on YouTube two days ago, the full video. I did teasers, like little by little, right? Sure. So, uh, but that's not the only one. So I can spend, I, you know, I can manipulate elections if you like. I can, you know, give you a narrative that, you know, perhaps one of the um, candidates that you're considering, we found out that in his past life, he was an axe murderer, you know, or he stole ladies, he stole purses off ladies and, Right. You know, even if it had five bucks, they racked up their credit cards, who knows, you know, all kinds of things, right? Because, you know, this way we look at villains elsewhere. And I'm being very simple here. I'm not going into the deep, deep weeds here. But the other one that you'll like, because, you know, we're having separation, we're having a renaissance of tribalism, right? And, um, you know, America is a melting pot. That's the name of the game. And America is a melting pot. But what they can do now is I can take a message and I can speak and you'll think I'm talking French either by my lip movements or I'm talking Mandarin in Chinese language yeah. or Arabic or some of. So what I can do is I can take nuances of 15, 20 different subcultures in the United States, feed the messages through AI, make them so realistic and start now creating really uh, sustainable tribal warfare, more hatred, right? So we're in um, trouble is what it sounds like, because, I mean, if it, yeah. in a world where it's already kind of tough to find the truth on topics, uh, the future with AI seems like it's going to be even more difficult to find <coughs> the re reality of things and to parse out truth from all of the deep fake and the like all the stuff you're talking about with AI. So, I mean... Yeah. Sounds like the human race is doomed. Are, are, are we going to merge with machines? Are we going to merge with the AI at some point? <laughs> well, and you're taking me there, probably a bit more advanced than what I was going to, but uh, you took me a couple steps ahead. The first struggle will be this. Who's going to be the arbitrator of truth? Government? Sure. Please. Uh, I Great mean, question. basically, without government, there'd be, we could take, you know, we could take out of the dictionary. Without government, there's no such thing as misinformation and disinformation. Sure. <laughs> I mean, where else does it come from? Really, seriously though. Uh, um, and I, I've been throwing a lot of bows and arrows at them. That's that's terrible. But they do have a role in society. Wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But but not not this big, you know. So who's going to be the arbitrator of truth? 
right now we're dealing with chat. I, I don't know if you've been on chat uh, GPT or something. I'm sure you have. Yeah. You're a really hip guy. And uh, <laughs> so it does a lot of stuff. Like, you know, um, you know, I write my own books, but sometimes if I wanted to do a list of, in my book, I did the list of acquisitions Facebook made. Instead of go to Google, I go to chat, bang, it's up there in 15 seconds, and I massage yeah. it out. When these things get past 120, 140 IQ, when they get past 200 IQ, and they realize that, you know, we're collectively perhaps very dangerous, according to them, they get to 300 IQ, and they decide that they need to turn down the oxygen to bring down the carbon, and it wipes out half the human race. There's a guy that was on Lex Friedman. He was a professor from MIT, originally, yeah. I think, from Norway or Sweden. He's a very brilliant man. And I listened to his podcast. So it, it's so scary to wipe us out because, you know, you didn't want me to wipe out some of those um, rare, rare animals in Africa or India and all that. You didn't mean to. It's just that our inhabited, did, you know, we inhabit it and it did, you know. So there's a lot of species that are in danger and we could be in danger. But sure. that's more of a futuristic argument. I'm going to stick to the argument of AI, um, the level of gaslighting. The, you, you know, the truth need not apply. And if you sure. think the truth is, you know, this whole thing, especially since COVID, and maybe even seven, eight years ago, you know, the war, basically, it's the war on truth. So I think I got a good uh, model for if you want to run for president. I, it's better <laughs> than Trump's. Okay, you ready for this one? Sure. You're going to make the truth great again, Andrew. <laughs> Make the truth great again. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I see. And, a, I see a pro. I see a uh, t-shirt on my in my store uh, in my future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, well, you, you know, that's why I wore my black shirt today because I I have all these sinister nefarious ideas, and you know, we gotta <laughs> look the part. And you know, I, I brought my glasses just for a moment there. You know, I mean, just just in case. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, uh, I gotta anyway. So yeah. So so what? Um, Let's let's uh, come back to your book. Um, what would you be, uh, or I'm sorry, what would uh, you like to uh, explain as far as what people can learn uh, from your book and from this series, the practical MBA on economics, what they do and don't teach you uh, at business school? Uh, talk about your book a little bit and what people can uh, um, look forward to finding if they read your book. You are going to be, if you read my book when you finish, no matter, even if you've done an MBA, um, I wasn't taught about fiat money printing running amok when I went to business school. I learned all this stuff like you. I read, I read, I read, I sure. explore. Just curious, right? Just curious. Um, <clears throat> but you'll understand money printing. Um, you'll understand um, where government lies, what their true role is, right? And, and I mean it in a positive sense. Where you know we do need government. I mean, let's be reasonable. At In some, some ways, yes, for sure. Yeah, yeah, we were not like you know off our, off our trees here, um, but you'll get a history of economics and how it interweaves with oppression. You'll get a history of how this the uh, uh, the central reset of how the IMF came about, how the gold system after Bretton Woods came about, how the yeah. U.S. dollar came about, the fall of the British pound. How did the Americans achieve that? What were the what was the genesis and all the economic reasons that gave rise to the Second World War? Mm -hmm. What did the what did what type of uh, uh, what type of 
chokehold did the Allies put on Germany after the First World War to metamorphosize into someone like Hitler coming to power? Sure. What did they do? No, I'm not saying they did it directly. No, no I'm not going there. Right. I'm just saying, what did they do? What did Belgium do to German industry? What did France do to German industry? Um, uh, you know, the Versailles Agreement, right? So, um, so it goes into all of that. You know, John Maynard Keynes behind the scenes. What happened? I, I give you Adam Smith. Some of the things you mentioned. Um, so I go really. I, I talk about every last stock market crash. What caused it? You know, this time it's going to be different. Um, so, yeah, so when someone walks away from the book, The Practical MBA on Economics, it, it's not stuffy. You'll, you'll learn. You will feel so full that you'll turn around and just say, try and gaslight me, baby. It's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Sounds like you have a lot of history and research in there. That's amazing. No, I, I tried, but uh, yeah, we've had some fun here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what? So uh, before we go, what um, you said you have another book in the works on the way. Uh, can you tell us about that one real quick? We can yeah, that, there. that's in the works. Uh, well, it's it's written. I'm just adding a few paragraphs here and there and, and cleaning it up um, before then it'll go to a little bit more professional editing. But it's called the Gorilla Guide for Entrepreneurs. Everything from my experiences that I've traveled to, you know, pretty well four corners of the world on business, different cultures. Um, I've been stuck one night in El Salvador, you know, when uh, unceremoniously, uh, <laughs> but I survived that. I'm still here. Um, but it, it talks about that. It talks about negotiations. Um, I had a professor who wrote some very, you know, you can negotiate anything. I think that was one of his books, Gavin Kennedy. And oh, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Gavin Kennedy was my prof. Yeah. And um, oh, wow. yeah. And uh, I met. I actually had lunch with him, and uh, when I graduated, and a whole bunch of us did, a few students, and um, really bright guy. He's actually an economist. Um, I didn't know that till later, but that's not what he originally taught us. Um, but I, 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 I go through all my mentors, and conventions, uh, all, all the stories. I can tell you what happened to me in Egypt, what happened to me in Dubai, what happened to me in South Korea, what happened to me in China. What happened when I was selling in Latin America, when I was selling in Ecuador, El Salvador, nice. Guatemala, all these countries. And then, of course, we all have mentors. I introduced you to my mentors. And, Very cool. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's some cool stuff. And, and I show you where I learned design and cosmetics and feel. And I had people around me. And, I, you know, I can't even remember the rest of the chapter. So it's, it's, it's I should have it ready for a first draft to read in the next four weeks. Um, Cause you write a book and you go, Oh my God, did I write that? I'm glad that someone's looking at it because you know, they're <laughs> going to put me away for good this time, you know, <laughs> anyway, we've we got a lot of fun there and uh, you're really a good guy. Uh, and your show's really good. And I, I, you know, it's really happy for you. All, all the things you do, you, I don't, I don't know too much about you, but um uh, I know you've got your podcast and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. So for uh, a little bit about me, yeah, just uh, my show started from uh, being in the military for four years. I was in the Navy uh, for four years, did wow. two Western Pacific deployments. Uh, wow. And then 
Uh, I was a singer and a guitar player in punk rock bands for years and years. And so I kind of put the two worlds together and, and made this show. So, um, so yeah, Joe, uh, great, uh, great talking. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, tell my, tell my audience where they can find your stuff. You mentioned a YouTube channel and, uh, I'll put all your links, uh, on in the show notes and stuff so people can uh, find all of your stuff, but, uh, go ahead and plug, uh, anything you want to plug here at the end of the show. Sure. Um, on my YouTube channel, which I'm putting up my videos and so forth, uh, that's called The Practical MBA. Just do a search on YouTube. You'll find that. Um, uh, Joe Golisarian, Twitter. You'll find me there. Um, and I'm also on Instagram as well. So, you know, those are the channels. And of course, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, that's the place where I, you know, have a lot of you know, business contacts, so on and so forth there. Awesome. And, um, and yeah, and this has been great. And I thank you. Absolutely. And then you said the website, uh, website is practicalmpa.ca. Is that correct to find, uh, yes. information yeah. on the book and information about you? Perfect. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's great. Okay. So I'll put all those links in the notes and then, uh, Joe, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, very interesting stuff. And, uh, you'll have to come back in the future and catch us up when you, uh, release the new book. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. And uh, the pleasure was all mine. All right. Thank you, Joe. Uh, And that's it, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been episode 161 of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. Entitled Joe Golisarian. We'll see ya. Ladies and gentlemen, before I go, I just wanted to share this. I found that woman that wrote the Terminator and Matrix series. Uh, Her name is Sophia Stewart, and here she is on the Armstrong Williams show talking about the story of AI and man merging with machine and the Terminator and the Matrix. So I'm going to leave you guys with this. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Mr. Joe Gullisarian. And uh, I want you to listen to this here at the end of the show today. Here we go. The Terminator is the prequels to or the beginning of The Matrix. Sarah Connor is actually Neo's mother. So JC, John Connors, Jesus Christ grows up to be Neo, one and the same in The Matrix. The Matrix is in the future. The Terminator is the past, it's time travel, past, present, and future time travel. It's the second coming of the Christ, the evolutions of consciousness, man versus the machine. So the machines, the Terminator machines, hear that a child is going to be born that's going to terminate them in the future when they oppress man. See, it's a man versus the machine. It's God's children versus man's children, which was technology. So man versus nature. Exactly. So the Terminator has to time travel to the past because they know it's Sarah Connor and they have to kill her, terminate her, so she won't have the baby. And Kyle Reese, he comes from the future to protect her and he invertly gets her pregnant and he has to go back to the future. And so it's the Immaculate Conception because now she's pregnant and she fell in love with a man, but did it really happen? Did he exist? And then this child, when you see the three Terminators, the, the, the boy, 
And then the man child, subconsciously, he doesn't know why the Terminator is trying to kill him until he's hidden out in the city, in the matrix, the future. When he reaches 30 years of age, the rebellion, the reloaded revolution starts. And the rebels come and they find him because they've been watching him all along. That's what the guardians and the sentinels are all about. And so they wake him up to his purpose. They take him to Morpheus to train him to fight the machines. They take him to the Oracle because of the prophecy. So this is the whole epic story. It's an epic. Because this plays into why this sudden, this sudden mental change on Facebook. Where is Facebook now threat where they need to regulate them and shut them down? Facebook is nothing but a database for the CIA. That's all it is. It has all of your family's pictures, all of your friends. It has all the information. They used it here in Vegas when they had that car accident. Remember when the Maserati right by the Cromwell? When that happened right there, well, all they did was take camera footage from uh, Caesars, Bally's, and, you know, other uh, casinos. And they went and they took this footage and they got the license plates. And then they saw that the guy did, you know, California. He rented that uh, Range Rover. And after they did that, they went to social network and they found his girlfriend on Twitter so they found his picture. And then they went to LA, because they knew they were from LA, put his uh, picture on a $250,000 billboard and put a reward up for him for $25,000. And they got him within two weeks. Within two weeks because of the technology. So how should we... How do you advise people to share their image, well, their there's, data? There's not going to be any more privacy. Everything is camera down. Everything is caught on camera. And this is what it's going to be about in the future. Virtual reality that I'm explaining in The Matrix and Terminator. Everything is going to be... So now it's going to be so easy. You're, you're not going to have any more paper passports. It's just going to be where you come into the airport, they're going to scan you, your body, retinal, fingerprints, the whole nine yards. This is what clears the body. That's that right. Airport, that's what and yeah. this way, nobody has to alter paper and put a picture or a name on there because they have your bone structure, they have your eyes, they got your fingerprints. This is the database and they match you up. You see what I'm saying? And you go through. So that way no terrorists can come through and pretend to be somebody or, or somebody that they're looking for that's the most wanted. You see what I'm saying? Because all of this technology is going to store ruling. It's artificial intelligence. It's going to store ruling everything. Once the satellites come into play that I'm talking about this, maybe another five to ten years from now, they're really going to play uh, a phenomenal part. Because this is why Apple and Microsoft became the billion dollar, trillion dollar babies is because IBM and Xerox didn't know what a mouse was. A mouse meaning they didn't know what the internet was gonna be. You see what I'm talking about? They didn't wanna move into that technology. The studios don't know what streaming is. They got pissed off because Netflix paid $50 million and got three or four Oscars for the movie Roma. But it was never shown in the movie theaters at all. It was watched. And that's why Steven Spielberg and all of it. You know, when we come back, yes. I, I'm going to have uh, some of my crew to join you, my technical people, yes. as hero. 
we mentioned when you were coming on your lawsuits and the battles you've had to fight and you've just won in Utah, yes. but it's always a battle for you. Well, the reason why it's always a battle for me is because the government refuses to protect my copyrights. You know, I own the copyrights to all the derivative movies, the fran both franchises I own. It was adjudicated in Utah September the 25th, 2014. So why am I still with a RICO case here in Nevada, which I just won, but they're still trying to fix it so they can continue to use the stolen money, which is untraceable, and it's all linked to Hillary Clinton's foundation and money laundering. Do you consider yourself politically neutral? I consider myself totally neutral. All I'm worried about is for the people. Because if the government doesn't protect my copyrights, he doesn't protect yours. But the government afraid, is afraid of you. I'd be afraid of you. Well, there's no need to be afraid of me because I only stand for principles. But, but what you know and the knowledge you share and what you have insights to can be very dangerous to some people. Yes, but my job is to come here and waken people. That's what the Matrix is about, to wake you up from the Matrix, to get you out of the illusions and the lies and the ignorance. So it's not dangerous for me because that's my job. That's what I came here to do. That's why I wrote The Matrix and Terminator to wake people up so they can move on to greater, better things. Yeah, but a lot of these movie houses and these studios and the Facebooks of the world don't want people to know what happens to them every day when they share the information. But that's destroying their free will. But and do God you think, doesn't want that. But people, people want to play want to be ignorant. They don't want to know that they're being exploited. It requires too much responsibility when they find out. Well, that's what the blue and the blue pill and the red pill is about. The red pill is about the blood of the living beings. The black and the blue the ink is the machines. But this is the, the human's world. We are the winners. They are the losers. So people need to exert their free will regardless of what anybody wants. So what are the unintended consequences of all this that we're talking about? Their people's consciousness will shift and they will go on to create and do better things. They won't be in bondage. And this is the whole purpose of the Matrix and Terminator and the new work that's coming, Matrix 4. It's a Matrix 4 book is out. It's been selling for nine years since 2010 around the entire globe. People have to wake up and shift their consciousness so they can create, so they can build. Because you can't stay in the past. Everything must change, right? One of the things in the one minute that we have left, if you don't remember anything else about the broadcast today, is this. You're not as free as you think you are. You're in bondage in more ways than you imagine. And it's a different kind of slavery, very dangerous kind of slavery that the mind and how we concede ourselves to people without any thought, without any challenge, and we're so willing to surrender. Freedom comes with a price. It takes as much to maintain it as it did to establish it. It's not really free, and it's but, not for the faint of heart. But man is always going to take that challenge because man wants to be free. Look, everybody loved The Matrix and Terminator because it woke them up. They didn't even realize they were in the dream. They didn't realize they were in a simulation. They didn't realize they were in the illusions. But now that they are awakened, they will fight. Will you fight? Are you awakened? Are you ready to embrace your destiny? Because freedom comes from God, not from man. And the moment you realize that, you'll begin that journey of freedom. 
thank you so much. I want to say one thing, like Morpheus said, I didn't tell you it was going to be easy. He was just offering the truth. I love you guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.